Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to the 100th episode of An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty, along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal. I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. 100 episodes. Can you believe it? Thanks to all our listeners out there. It's been quite a journey trying to bring you some hope in some dark times. Luckily, Debbie and I have had some help along the way. Guests like Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Bakari Sellers, Boise Mayor Lauren McLean, and so many more. Today, for our centennial event, we're joined by U.S. Senator Chris Coons. He's the co-chair of the New Deal and a longtime friend. He's incredibly honorable in his service to our country, passing thoughtful foreign policy, innovative domestic policy, and fixing our democracy. He's a friend and an advisor to the president and involved in every major decision in the Senate. Enjoy our conversation and stick around as Debbie and I talk about some of our favorite moments from the first 100 episodes and our plans for the future. As always, An Honorable Profession is a New Deal podcast. Check out newdealleaders.org to find the next generation of American leaders and the policy initiatives they're pushing to make their communities and our country a better place. Here's our conversation with Senator Chris Coons. Senator Coons, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thanks. It's great to be on with you. We're so happy to have you. And I just wanted to start with a question just about the unique moment we're in in our country's history and this really this opportunity and responsibility that we have to create a post-COVID America that works better for everyone. Congress and the administration has already passed the American Rescue Plan. That was such a big step in stabilizing our country. But as we sit here thinking about what Congress will be doing going forward, what are you thinking about the kind of transformational investments that we need to do to get our country back on track? Well, I am excited and, and frankly grateful that we managed to get a broad bipartisan infrastructure package through the Senate. I am optimistic it'll get through the House and to the president's desk, and it makes a dramatic investments, uh, a generational investment in infrastructure of all kinds, the more traditional things like roads and bridges and tunnels, airports and seaports, uh, but also the 21st century infrastructure like a broadband access that'll help bring our country together and help address some of the inequalities in terms of access to modern infrastructure that we saw during the pandemic as it shut down you know, schools and workplaces. And we are now delivering all over the country the tools to access uh, the workplace and the learning place of the 21st century. We are now working, we're in the throes of working in, in the Senate and the House on delivering on President Biden's uh, American Families Plan. And I am optimistic that we will end up making a generational investment in reducing the cost of health care, 
daycare, providing for paid family leave, providing for high quality pre-K, providing for more affordable and accessible higher education through community college. Something I am genuinely excited about, and Debbie, you know this, I've been, I've been about this for decades now, is a significant expansion of national service opportunities. There was a billion dollars in the American Rescue Plan back now many months ago to help significantly strengthen the network of service opportunities around the country. And President Biden ran on, and I have been advocating for, a civilian climate core, which would be a modern version of the 1930 CCC, a diverse and inclusive national network of conservation corps that would give Americans an opportunity to serve their country, to combat climate change, and to earn an opportunity for higher education. That hasn't been covered as much as some of these much bigger proposals, but it will be tens of billions of dollars over the next decade, and it'll make, I think, a lasting difference in creating a pathway to opportunity at the same time that we come together to combat climate change. Thank you, Senator. I couldn't agree more. And as in the West, where we're hit with fires, that climate core is uh, is much needed and will be much used to, to address the many natural disasters we face. Can I ask, you're at an interesting intersection because of your long-term relationship with the president and being a senator in trying to fix governance, both culturally and sort of from a mechanism point of view. How are you doing that? How do you think about your role uh, and what keeps you showing up every day to do the work? <laughs> uh, great question. You know, look, first, the work is demanding and it's interesting. And we are clearly at a, a pivot point in, in the arc of American history. That alone draws me to it. I think of myself as someone who is a dedicated Democrat committed to the core values that uh, President Biden ran on and that my caucus is advancing, but also someone who tries to demonstrate an ability to compromise, to listen, to work across the aisle. At the present moment, our sharp uh, party differences over um, voting rights and, and access to the ballot box, um, over investments in, in racial justice and racial equity, uh, and in our views on climate change, uh, make this less a moment for outreach and bipartisanship than a moment for our caucus to come together and deliver the kinds of solutions we were just talking about. Uh, but for years, uh, I've been working on bipartisan um, paths forward on immigration, on criminal justice reform, on climate change. Uh, Ryan, I, I formed uh, the Climate Solutions Caucus with conservative Republican Senator Mike Braun of Indiana several years ago. We have 14 members. We're sending a bipartisan delegation to the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. We have moved a number of pieces of legislation through the Senate. And I continue to believe that on some of the biggest challenges facing us, if we can find a bipartisan solution, it is more likely to be durable. If we can't, despite you know, repeated efforts, then I'm willing to take bold action to advance the sort of agenda that uh, Joe Biden ran on and that led to his being elected president. Senator, just building on that, on that thought, I know that you have been for so, you know, as long as I've known you, someone who's really worked to try to find common ground, you know, 
lean in on our shared values. So let me broaden that question out a little bit. And as you, you mentioned your, your work on, on serve, national service, are there other things that you think that we need to be doing as a country, not just kind of stepping outside Washington, but you know, what, what do you think about when you think about how we're going to come together as Americans to solve some of these really pressing challenges? Well, partly I think we need to look back at our own history and partly I think we need to look out at the situation of the rest of the world and the combined challenges that we face. Next week, a group of us, a bipartisan group of us, are going to Gettysburg. I have an ancestor who fought at Gettysburg. Uh, So do many of the other senators, uh, Democrats, Republicans, and independents who will be going on this trip. And it's it's an opportunity to visit one of the most crucial uh, battle sites in the history of the United States, and as a group to reflect on what it means to work together to stave off the kind of a violent schism, a deep misunderstanding, a deep differences over basic values that led to the American Civil War. I'm also frequently traveling overseas with Republicans, Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska, who is the lead organizer with Senator Angus King of Maine of the Gettysburg trip, is someone with whom I recently traveled to South Korea and Taiwan. Senator Duckworth, Senator Sullivan and I went to Taiwan in a bipartisan effort to send a strong signal of support to Taiwan by delivering over a million vaccines in response to an urgent request from them for assistance. And frankly, to send a not very subtle signal to the People's Republic of China that we intend to continue to build our relationship with Taiwan. When I've traveled outside this country with a bipartisan group, as I recently did to Guatemala with five other senators, two other Democrats and three Republicans, looking back at the problems facing our country, whether it's immigration or drug trafficking, whether it's economic opportunity or inequality, it seems easier because when you're in another country in their context, the United States frankly looks pretty good uh, in comparison to the challenges that many, many other countries are facing. And I think it helps pull us back to a sense of of a shared national purpose and a shared national identity. Thank you, Senator. It's a good reminder of the broader context. In our final moments, we've known each other for a long time and you've known Debbie even longer. We have a lot of our listeners on this 100th episode are in state or local government or private sector and thinking about service. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided where to apply your talents in service to the country? Sure, Um, and thanks for the question. One of the reasons uh, I was involved with Debbie and a number of others in coming up with and supporting the launch of New Deal was because of an experience I had with a similar group, the DLC Fellows, many years ago. I was, as you know, a county council president and then a county executive. And in the 10 years- All been downhill since then. I'm sorry? (laughs) It's all been downhill since then. It has, frankly. Um, The decade that I spent in county government was in some ways the most rewarding. It was the most directly connected to having an impact on the community where I grew up. And first, I would urge anyone who's listening who's not already in elected office to consider county and uh, municipal government because that's where you frankly can have the most direct impact. How did I end up in elected service? Well, from childhood, through Boy Scouts and through the youth program at my church, through the role modeling that my parents provided. Uh, My father was a a volunteer in prison ministry. My mother um, welcomed to the United States uh, a South Vietnamese refugee family and volunteered 
at a local uh, food bank and homeless shelter. The service that my parents provided in our community uh, quietly without taking any credit or thinking they were doing anything unusual, and the culture of service that was part of where I grew up led me to be active in a number of student government and youth leadership programs, led me to apply for and win the Truman Scholarship. And then I, you know, gradually got to know more and more young people passionate about making a difference. It wasn't clear to me, Ryan, that I would end up running for office early on. There was no one in my immediate family or no one I knew in my family who'd ever been elected to anything. My father was a small businessman and a, uh, my mother a teacher. And uh, most of my family been involved in business. You know, our public service was almost exclusively military in the generations before me. But my wife, Annie, who I met through the AmeriCorps program, was working in local government. I became very passionate after becoming a Democrat in college about elections and electoral office. And ultimately, after a lot of time in the nonprofit sector and the for-profit sector, in 2000, I decided to run a countywide. And then, you know, I'll say, frankly, my ending up running for the Senate was a mixture of luck and providence. It was, you know, sort of the right place at the right time. I just happened to be the right person. And uh, I got lucky in terms of who my opponent was and who my supporters were. But 11 years into it and three elections later, I'm grateful that that the people of Delaware continue to give me the opportunity to serve in the Senate and to be a part of trying to help deliver on President Biden's bold agenda. And I'm deeply grateful, um, Brian and Debbie, for people, friends like you, who've helped sustain me. Folks who are listening, I'd encourage them to realize that the, the journey of public service is, is not an individual pathway, but is something that is sustainable, really only to the extent that you've got friends and partners in that service. And I'll close by saying we deeply need people of character, people of goodwill, who are willing to dive in and to make a difference, to take up the challenge of public service and to be determined and optimistic and bring their skills and their, their faith, their spirit, their personality into public service. So if there's anyone who's listening, come on in, the water's fine and we need you. <laughs> thank you so much, Senator. And, and just thank you so much, not only just for being here today and for all your words today, but also for your willingness to co-chair New Deal and to um, you know provide that mentorship and that support that you were talking about in your own journey to so many state and local leaders across the country. It is appreciated and it is inspiring. So thank you. Thank you, Debbie. It's a joy and an honor. And it's great to be on with you, Ryan, and on with you, Debbie. And thanks for uh, working me into the 100th episode of this great podcast about an honorable profession. Debbie, that was such a fun conversation with Senator Coons. He is just such an incredibly thoughtful guy. We're so lucky to have him. I know you've been friends with him for a long time. Has he always been this thoughtful? Yeah, it really was a great conversation. I'm so grateful to him for joining us. And, you know, the short answer is yes, he has always been as thoughtful. I've really had the privilege of knowing him since before he ran for county executive and worked very closely with him in that capacity before he ran for U.S. Senate. And I just think it was so appropriate not only to have him because of his role with New Deal as an, our honorary co-chair celebrating our 100th episode, but also just because he's such a great poster child for the concept of, of an, politics being an honorable profession, right? I mean, his commitment to service, his commitment to finding solutions across the aisle, and just um, really 
thinking about country over party or, you know, anything else like that, that he's just such a dedicated public servant. And he, I couldn't, I can't think of a better person when we think of what it means to, to, for politics to be an honorable profession. Absolutely. And that's why we chose him for our hundredth episode. Can you believe we're at a hundred (laughs) episodes? It is like, it feels like just yesterday you and I were talking uh, about launching a podcast. And I think it's far exceeded either of our expectations. Just to remind listeners, this podcast started because I was at a New Deal conference and I was meeting with just these amazing leaders at the local and the state level. And when I come back from my New Deal conference, I'd be energized, I'd be inspired, I'd be ready to go. And yet everyone around me was so dark and unhappy. It was 2018, it was the height of the Trump administration's failures and criminal activity and I felt it was important to to elevate the voices of New Dealers so that people could all feel as inspired as I, I did after I left a New Deal conference. Yeah, I mean, it is, first of all, it is amazing we're at 100 episodes. And, I, you know, you think about the 100 amazing people we've talked to and you've talked to. It, it is inspiring. It's inspiring every every episode, frankly. And I appreciate what you said about the, the New Deal conferences. You know, in addition to this being our 100th episode of the podcast, this year was the 10th anniversary of New Deal and another milestone I'm incredibly proud of. And I'm so grateful and proud to have worked with so many amazing leaders, the hundred we've heard from so far, the other, the hundreds beyond them that many of you will hear from in the future. And they're just doing such amazing things. And when we started New Deal with the hope that we could both support people on the ground doing amazing things, doing innovative work and help them share and spread those good ideas. And never did we realize how important that would be, particularly as we've seen over the last two years with the pandemic and the recession and the fight for racial justice and so much that has been on the shoulders of state and local leaders. But we also wanted to to work with and support leaders on their way up, right, who were rising. And um, we, you know, we've talked to so many leaders like that on this podcast. That's right. I think let's pat ourselves on the back for uh, identifying uh, leaders before most of the country knew about them or knew who they were. Some leaders, including Mayor Pete, before he became uh, Secretary Pete, Alex Padilla, before he got named to the U.S. Senate here in California, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, just an amazing guy who's on his way up. Georgia Senator Jen Jordan, who's just announced she's running for uh, attorney general, and Tobias Reed up in Oregon, who just announced he's running for governor. We've found, I think, the the bench of the Democratic Party and tried to highlight those folks before before a lot of people knew who they were. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. And I hope people go back to listen and listen some of those episodes. I'm thinking, too, of you know, a couple of fantastic mayors, a few w- fantastic women mayors in particular. You talked to to Shara Jones when she was treasurer of St. Louis. She's now the first African-American woman to be mayor of St. Louis. Lauren McLean, when she was city council president in Boise and who's now mayor of Boise and doing a, an incredible job. I know you talked to her about climate and so many things that she, she just had President Biden uh, in Boise last week talking about uh, her climate action plan. So you were way ahead of the curve on that one. And, and just so many more people who are just firsts in in their in in their virtue of who they are in that job but also just doing amazing work and let me just uh take a moment of mutual appreciation your most recent episode with uh robert garcia who's the first latino 
openly gay and youngest mayor of uh, Long Beach, one of the most inspiring mayors uh, in the country. Ryan Fechtow, who was uh, the youngest and first openly gay speaker of the main legislature. Those were really just fantastic conversations that you had of some amazing firsts. Thank you. Well, thank, and you know, I know we're we're listing off a lot of people, but I want to I want to do it because I want to encourage people to go back and listen to these amazing conversations we had. I will I will add to that list that you you did a great uh, interview with Stephen Reed, who became the first black mayor of Montgomery, Alabama. And one of my favorite episodes that, that was with Danielle Moreno from Nevada, who's a legislator there. And she, we, I can't remember when you talked to her, but I think it was right when the legislature flipped to be the first ever female majority legislature in the country. There's just, you know, so many conversations like that where people were breaking barriers. And really, to be honest, we were kind of documenting what's happened over the last two years in terms of the um, so many more people of color and women uh, running and, and winning these seats. And it's really changed the makeup of the um, of elected officials across the country. And you can kind of see it happening in real time as we're talking to these people. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to sort of highlight a couple that Danielle Monroe Moreno conversation. One is pre-COVID. So we sat in her house and had the conversation, but she talked about some of her struggles with pregnancy. And then she talked about what a female majority means about different conversations a legislature has and specifically around the pink tax and her the conversations she could then have with her Republican colleagues. And it was incredibly inspiring. I hope we have a chance to listen to that now where you can get a sense of just, just the kind of work that she was doing. As a woman, we see things a little bit different from a different set of lenses. And having that conversation, because my first um, term, we were not the female majority. We were a Democratic majority, but not a female majority. Second session coming back, having a female majority, you could now have those conversations that may have made um, my male colleagues blush, but we could have those open conversations. They're like, you've had them at your dinner table with your daughters and your wives. Now we just need to have them at the political table. And give me an example of a different conversation that happened uh, because cause you were there. Oh, well, we started the conversation on the pink tax. And someone said, well, I don't see why that's important. I said, okay, well, you know, there's things that women get charged a tax for that we have no control over. It's the way God made us that men don't have a tax for. And when you add that up, it comes out of our household budgets. Are we being penalized for being women? And my male counterparts had never thought about that. Even one of my Republican male counterparts, and he had all daughters, and he said, you know, I never thought about that. So he said, I just want you to go to the store, something you've probably never done before. I'm not gonna ask you to buy it, but walk down the aisle, for sanitary napkins and tampons, and look at the cost of those, and know that each one of your daughters are going to have that cycle once a month. You have three daughters, so you're gonna be paying for that three times. They're gonna be in your house probably from 12 to 19. You're the one paying for that, add that up, and how much those taxes are. And you tell me, Dad, is that fair? <laughs> and he did it. He came around? He did it. He said, oh my goodness, I didn't realize how much that is. I said, now, you don't get taxed for some other things that you may use, but it's a choice that you use those. We don't have a choice. Another great conversation 
real personal conversation was with Garland Gilchrist, who's Lieutenant Governor of Michigan, incredibly smart guy, thoughtful guy. And he talked about the need to reform policing. And it was based partly on some of his, his experiences as a, as a teenager being profiled by police and how the impact that had and how it changed his uh, approach to public service and his commitment to the issue. It was a powerful moment, I think. I, like I think a lot of other black men who have seen that, whenever we see these stories, we think about all the moments in, that, in our lives and that could have been us. And I think about the time, like, look, like my first interaction with police was as a nine-year-old. You know, I, my, I grew up the first half of my childhood in the city of Detroit and we moved to the suburbs when I was eight and a half. And we moved to a suburb where I was like the one of two black kids in my neighborhood and playing with all of my new friends. Somebody called the police, I guess, because we were loud because nine-year-old boys are really loud when they run around outside. And the police came and singled me out as a, you know, the black kid in the group, the biggest kid in the group, because I'm tall, I'm still tall, six, eight. I was the biggest kid in the group. And they like questioned me. And the guy said to me something I would never forget. He said, I'm going to take your name down because I'm going to see you again. And I remember being really upset about that, going home to my parents, telling that story, and being just really, really upset about it. And every experience I've had since then, whether it was getting pulled over at 16 on my way to high school for going 24 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, to actually intervening as an adult, trying to break up uh, what I thought what I saw was an escalating situation of potential police violence on the west side of Detroit. Like, like I just think about, and I know a lot of people think about, that could have been me. That could have been my my friend, my brother, my cousin, my uncle, my nephew. And just just the fact that it keeps happening tells you that the need for change is not only urgent and important, but it is present. And sometimes I think people forget without the benefit of like video evidence that these things are happening in communities across the country um, every single day. And so what I hope we can think about is that, yes, as elected leaders and appointed leaders and community leaders, we have a role to play in making the change on the programmatic and policy level. But all of us have a responsibility on a cultural level to change the culture that enables this type of behavior to continue, that enables this devaluing of human life and of black life to continue. And this culture that gives permission for people to attempt to kill black folks with little reason or little purpose. And, and so I, I certainly hope that this will help to continue the calls to action for uh, not just justice in this situation, but justice in the broadest possible sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, so powerful. And you, um, I love that you, you know, one of the things we get to hear from these folks when we're talking to them is, is there is there a journey into public service, but but deeper than that, kind of the forces or the experiences that shaped their interest in public service, right? That kind of led them to believe that service was important, that they could make a difference. And, you know, to that point, I'll add a couple of my, I mean, it's hard to say favorite, but that's terrible because I, I feel like you're asking me to choose one of my children. But, uh, you know, some just some that stand out to me on, on that, you know, on that on that plane, you know, I love talking to Will Jawando, who's a Montgomery County council member in Maryland. Um, and he talked really movingly about 
his upbringing, which had been really in poverty, juxtaposed against an adjacent community where his mother worked uh, that was affluent and just the disparities and how he through school uh, was able to move into that other world and have opportunities that some of his friends that he had earlier in life didn't have, you know, and how that really just he realized through you know, that was happening through decisions that were going to be made on budgets and on policy, and that he was going to you know, kind of dedicate his life to making sure that those disparities were addressed. It was a really, really moving conversation. Somehow my dad came on a scholarship to that small Kansas farm town, Hayes, Kansas. They met and moved east uh, for economic opportunity and settled in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I was born and raised. And they split early, and we were very low income before. When they split, it was even worse, you know, and I realized and I saw firsthand you know, what it meant to live in a poorly maintained, dilapidated apartment, you know, where roaches and mice and, you know, they're flying gnats that could got on you, couldn't sleep and, you know, just horrible. No one should have to live like that anywhere. And how that happened in the midst of abundance. And, you know, when I, my mom worked in, in, a, in downtown Silver Spring and we lived about two, three miles away and it was night and day, you know, as far as what, her job, her office building. And thankfully she had that job because I spent most of my after school hours there. I saw that this area was developing and they were building all this nice stuff. And in my community, it was really poor. And it just really, I, I even for early on, I was like, why is that the case? It just didn't make sense. And then when I uh, got the scholarship to my, to this private high school, I really saw me and my friends go one way and I went another and it culminated with me, unfortunately, losing one of my best friends in an act of gun violence. I was at his funeral. I was getting ready to go to college on a scholarship. He was in a box. And it, it made me also, in a real way, analyze what I really had been analyzing my whole life. What's the cause of these inequities? And, you know, I think it just motivated me to really investigate. And I started thinking about things that are really policy and budgetary decisions. You know, like I had access to, my mom worked one good living wage paying job, right? So that meant she could make enough that we ate every night, even though we didn't have a ton and she could be home with me after school. His mom worked two jobs. She cleaned houses and did another job. And so she wasn't around as much. There wasn't an after school program at his school. There was that I, I did have access to mentors. My after school program was hanging out at her office, which is what her boss allowed. And I met all these great mentors and she worked at a newsletter publishing company and I had access to a free after school program almost. And so I realized that, you know, things like transportation infrastructure, his mom going two and a half hours on the bus back and forth, wasn't home, after school programs, uh, being able to work a living wage job, you know, stable and clean housing. These are all, you know, policy budgetary decisions that we decide as a society to do or to not do. And so that's how I kind of got into that. And I realized when I realized it wasn't that I was better than him or he was worse than me, that it was really these access to opportunity and these decisions that were made external to each of us, it got me really upset. And you could say in a, in a way, I'm really been on a 25 year plus journey, just trying to make those that less likely, the outcome that happened to him and, and expand those levels of opportunity to everybody. And, you know, that's, that's what really has driven me along with, you know, all the great people I've met along the way, working for President Obama, working for Nancy Pelosi and Sherrod Brown and serving as a staffer. But I didn't know I was going to run for office 
until I got on Capitol Hill and realized it all came together. I said, oh, this is where the decisions are made. This is how things are done. And they have a direct connection to the lives of people. I love that conversation. When I think back, one of the conversations that, that about that journey into public service, my conversation with Sarah McBride, who is the highest ranking trans elected official in the country uh, out of Delaware, and just her talk about finding her place and finding her voice and also keeping hope in a system that often lets people down, especially people who are, are are different or in the minority, and how she keeps her optimism. I found it just just really moving. And it actually, frankly, it hit me at a time when I was, I think I was frustrated about, you know, some legislative activity I was working on here. And to hear her strength and her journey, you know, it reinvigorated me and hopefully it, it moved listeners as well. Change making is hard work. It, it, it really is hard work. It's not for the faint of heart. And there are going to be plenty of instances where you're going to feel like you, you're making false starts, that, that you're going to wonder whether it's false hope. There are going to be moments where you have a crisis of faith. I've certainly had that. But one of the things I think I've, I've, I've learned is that hope isn't necessarily an organic phenomenon. I think sometimes we think that, that, that hope just happens. And if it doesn't just happen, if you don't just feel it, then there's nothing that you can do about it. Sometimes hope has to be conscious. And if you do the work for long enough, you will find those moments of hope, those moments of progress that you can latch on to. That in, it, when things get tough, when, when sometimes everything feels broken and impossibly broken, you can remind yourself and give yourself that, that motivation, that energy, that reason for hope. I've certainly learned that. And so one piece of advice I always have for folks is to, to, to take those moments of hope, take those moments of progress and, and file them away in your mind and try to summon them when things get tough, when the, when, when the odds seem uh, against you. And to remember that throughout history, it's always been in our biggest challenges that we take our most significant steps forward. It's in crisis that, that, that innovation is required and fostered. It's in those moments of, of, of tragedy that we end up not only triumphing over the, the, the challenge, but oftentimes making progress that prior to seemed so impossible that it was almost incomprehensible. And, and so that, that's important. But I, I will say that for all of the challenges in our politics right now, I'm as hopeful as I've ever been. In fact, I'm probably more hopeful than I've ever been because of the change that I witnessed in the 10 years before I ran for office, I ran for office because I was, at the end of the day, hopeful that we can do big things, that we can make change, because I'd seen it and I'd lived it. I'd fought for it and I'd, I'd experienced it as an advocate. And, and so I remain hopeful, but even in moments where I, I question whether that's uh, naive, I think back to those, those instances of progress, those moments of hope that I've experienced throughout my career, whether it's passing legislation that people literally laughed us out of the room when we first brought it to them, when it, whether, it, whether it's, you know, beating back anti-LGBTQ bills that seemed inevitable, whether it's the hearts and minds that have been opened, whether it's the young LGBTQ people who exist today and their existence personifies our progress, no matter what it is, there are so many reasons for, for hope and for optimism that I, 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 I try to summon that 
when I'm feeling discouraged or, or down. That's such a powerful conversation. And, and I want to add another one into the mix. I mean, when I think about what we've heard over 100 episodes, you know, we've also heard a lot about the impact people have had being able to address issues that they care so deeply about, you know, those experiences that we were talking about. And one of the conversations I had a- along those lines was with Anna Tovar, who was recently elected to the Corporations Commission, which is a statewide office in Arizona. She's the first Latina to ever be on that commission. And she was mayor at the time we spoke of Tolerson, Arizona. And she is a, a two-time transplant survivor, a leukemia survivor. And she talked, um, it was one of my early, uh, early interviews I got to do with someone. And truthfully, we were both crying (laughs) at the the end of it, talking about how she was able to, when she was in the legislature, have an impact on 99 people who were waiting on transplants where the governor had cut the funding and these people weren't going to get them. And the amazing grit she put in to make sure that 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 wouldn't happen. The cuts to transplants happened during the recession in 2010, um, and there were 99 patients in Arizona that were on this uh, Medicaid access plan here in Arizona. From one day to the next, um, their lives changed for the worse, where they received a letter in the mail that said, you know, due to the legislative cuts and, you know, the governor approving these cuts, you're no longer eligible for a transplant. In fact, there isn't a transplant that you'll have because the funding has been cut. Those 99 patients had exhausted any other option um, for survival and their transplant was their last chance of survival. So when I was at the state capitol, you know, I I found out about this story and I said, well, clearly this has to be a mistake. You know, like this could get fixed, you know, immediately. Let's try and do that. So I focused on trying to bring about a quick solution, but found out very quickly that no one wanted to restore $1.45 million to the budget to save 99 lives. They used some incorrect data in saying that transplants weren't effective of saving people's lives. So that's when I said, okay, I'm here for a reason, and let me share my story of how two transplants saved my life. And so shared my story with my colleagues, then with um, media as well, too. And then I said, okay, well, I'm going to be the person that's going to carry this water and going to be the voices uh, for the 99 patients. And so I started contacting them and asking them to contact me. So we came up quickly with a plan where either if the patients were well enough and some weren't, where their families would come as well too and share their story to their state rep and their state senator. I then drafted 12 different types of bills to restore this funding and save their lives. Um, I actually fundraised the $1.45 million to actually get it back into the state's budget. I also asked for the governor to talk to me every single day, and she refused. About six months into this journey, the third person had passed away. And granted, I I got to know a lot of these families and patients. And this last person that passed, he actually went to the same uh, cancer clinic that I did. Um, He was 22 years old, passed away. And that night we had a vigil at the state capitol And 
I was just upset. I was like, wow, there's people dying because people's in action. I have multiple solutions sitting right in front of you and just frustrated at the inaction of the governor. And so that night I was on Fox News and I said some choice words, all professional, of course, but (laughs) caught the eye of the governor where the next day their office called and said, you're not going to stop, right? I said, no, I've just started the fight. So I have the solutions. And actually, you can take full credit for everything you restore. I just want these people to have a second chance at life. And so from that call, about five days later, transplants were reinstated. And at that time, 96 people were able to get their transplant and be back on the list. And the day that we reinstated the funding, there was a double lung transplant recipient named Tiffany Tate. And the day that we reinstated the transplants, she got a call saying that she had two lungs waiting for her for her transplant. You know, just hearing these these leaders talk about, you know, whether there's there's others too, certainly about Ryan Fechtel, you mentioned earlier, banning conversion therapy in, in Maine. And, and there's just so many others who talked about, you know, something something that they felt so passionately about or experienced and then being able to do something about it as an elected official and how how really that's what public service is to them. You know, that's what it's all about. Yeah. It's been fun also to have people I think, you know, I think people see elected officials as, as a, holding a particular office and doing press events. But um, so many people have talked about their families. Bakari Sellers, who's a former New Dealer, now a famous CNN analyst, as well as a as well as an author of an amazing book, you know, talked about how the conversations he has with his kids about race and also the conversations he wants white people to have with their kids about race. These conversations that we're having now are are very challenging and very difficult. And white folks tend to ask me often about the conversation that black folk got to have with their kids. You know, we have, uh, you know, we have to have questions about interactions with law enforcement and interactions with the Amy Coopers of the world that white folks simply don't have to have with their kids. And while that's an intriguing conversation to figure out what I'm teaching my kids, I'm more, I'm more, intrigued about what are you teaching your children? How are you teaching them to give my, my, my son and daughters the benefit of their humanity? How are you showing by example? Are you elevating people of color around you in your workplace, in your friend circle? Are you empowering them? Are you including them in the decision-making process? Because our young people are watching. And so those are more interesting conversations and the introspection that's needed now. I remember Larry and Gaylor Baird is the now the mayor of Lincoln, Nebraska, talking about trying to to be a model for her kids as she tries to to solve some of the challenges in her community. And it's you know, I think I think the nice thing about podcasts is it gives people a forum where we can go into a little more depth beyond just the the soundbite and the policy proposal, but but also a little bit of the of the meaning that that people try to bring from their lives and their experience into public service. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I you know, I've been struck by just, um, you know, it runs the gamut, right? Isn't it uh, of how people got into politics, right? Or how they they you know came into the public office that they're now holding, and whether it was you know people who 
whose f- family were somehow involved in politics, you know, who had a, an elected official as a parent, maybe, to people who, you know, we've talked to, I've talked to so many, I know you have too, of so many people who were immigrants to this country, who maybe were the first in their family to go to college and had these opportunities that their rest of their family didn't have and felt a real responsibility to to take advantage of the opportunities that their parents gave them. I mean, um, uh, Mayor Lorza, Providence, Rhode Island, talked really movingly about that and how he almost didn't graduate from high school and he was, uh, or that he, he called himself a dunce, I think, you know, that he really had kind of messed up and gotten on a wrong path and looked at his parents and said, what am I doing? And really turned it around and, you know, became a, a lawyer and worked on Wall Street before he ran for ran for um, office. But, uh, or Nina Kulkarni, who's, you know, uh, first Indian American, I believe, in her legislature and, and what her parents sacrificed to bring her to this country and why she ran for office. Those are just such, such, such inspiring stories. Absolutely. And just so the listeners know, I always tell people when they sort of right before we go live, I say, you know, one of the things to remember here is you're talking to somebody who's maybe sitting at a desk, not entirely happy with their job, thinking about public service, but not quite sure that they have the right personality or the right connections. What do you have to say to them? Like keep them in mind as the sort of typical audience member. And I think, you know, after 100 episodes, the amazing thing is that you can really see that people come from all backgrounds. We have introverts, we have extroverts, we have people who really dive deep on one policy issue, people who engage on a lot of different policy issues, people who are, uh, you know, running for higher and higher office and people who have have found the place where they think they're going to serve the the best and and stay there. That's one of the things that's sort of been surprising, I think, uh, in my time and having these conversations is just the diversity of the voices, backgrounds, experiences, motivations. And, and every everyone's story is, is so incredibly unique. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, Ryan, when we're talking to people about kind of why they decide to run for office or what tips they would have for people thinking about running for office or just general kind of practical advice. I've had fun asking that question to a lot of people and hearing, you know, kind of things that they would pass on. Zach Klein, who's the um, city attorney in Columbus, who I recently talked to, told this amazing story about, you know, being an intern college in Washington, D.C., and and taking the step of asking a speaker to go to coffee with him after he, he spoke to their group. And, you know, Zach stayed in touch with this person. This person ended up in the Obama White House working for Vice, then Vice President Biden and, and hired Zach to come do that right after college, after law school. So, you know, he was just telling everyone, you know, take advantage of opportunities or or Natalia Macker, who's uh, in Wyoming on their her county commission, you know, her experience of walking into the legislature and seeing no one that looked like her. And so many of our guests have talked about that and how, you know, she wasn't sure she felt ready, but she decided to take the plunge because she thought it was important to have women and diverse voices at the table and how she was telling any woman who'd ever think about running for office you know, don't wait till you think you're ready. You you know more than you think you do. Just do it, you know? And I just love that kind of really practical advice coming from their experiences. I do too. And to all the listeners out there, we've made it 100 episodes. We have a lot of more amazing leaders to talk to. One of the great things about the New Deal is they're always bringing on a new class and a new group of leaders. So we have a never-ending supply of talent that we will be bringing you. And I encourage folks, if they, if they haven't listened to all 100 episodes, go back. 
listen to a couple of the episodes that we highlighted or one that speaks to you. I look forward to talking to you again, Debbie, when we hit 200 episodes of Amazing New Deal Leaders. I love it, Ryan. I, I can't wait to meet, meet 100 plus more. Thanks so much for, uh, for all you do on this. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more Amazing Leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.